For decades, America has struggled to combat the harms of drug use, but the harms have increased and the fight is endless because we've been wrong. What if we changed our drug policies to actually decrease the harms of drug use and increase thriving for all of us? Our criminal approach to drugs had a beginning and it will have an end. Join us on the journey to end it for good. Welcome to the End It For Good podcast. I'm Christina Dent, along with Mike Madison, my co-host and producer. If you've listened to episode one, which I highly recommend as it sets the stage for every episode after it of why we're doing what we're doing, you'll know that I got interested in how we handle drugs through our family becoming a foster family. It was the first time I had come close to addiction and the first time that I realized that addiction was a complex, devastating health issue and not a criminal behavior. And I saw that first um, through uh, Joanne, one of the moms of the uh, a little boy that we fostered. And as I got to know her and see her interact with her son, um, I realized, wow, this is really a mom just like me. And she loves her son just as much as I love my son. And when she's calling from treatment and asked me to put her on speakerphone so she can sing to him, he was a newborn. uh, That's real. It's real. It's real love. It's real care for him. And her addiction wasn't a lack of love or a lack of care for her child. Uh, What was a a complex, um, really a complex health issue that she was dealing with. So when we started foster care, I knew that drugs was a big part of the child welfare system as a cause of removal. In Mississippi, where we are, almost 50% of the nearly, uh, I think it's around 5,000 kids that are in foster care, have been removed for something drug-related. But the picture in my mind of the situation when a child was removed for, you know, quote-unquote drugs, I began to realize was actually very different from the lived-out reality of what was actually happening. So when I pictured that, I pictured a parent who was addicted, maybe homeless, with a child raising itself as the parent was high or passed out most of the time. This picture of kind of like absolute dysfunction in the home. And I realized that that picture that I'm describing is just dripping with stigma and stereotype. But at that time, I didn't know any different, and that's what I thought, so I'm just trying to be honest. And what I began to realize over time is that um, at that time, it was common for a child to be removed from their home in Mississippi simply for a positive marijuana drug test of their parent, even if there was an investigation and it showed no abuse or neglect in the home, just the positive test was enough um, for a judge to say the child was being neglected. Now, that was really hard for me to wrap my mind around because I knew, uh, not from personal experience, but I heard people talk all the time about all the professional people in our city Um, who had, you know, were attorneys or doctors or businessmen or bankers um, who smoked marijuana now and then, uh, but they weren't bad parents. So maybe they would have been better parents if they weren't smoking marijuana. I don't know. But they weren't abusing or neglecting their kids. There was no reason for those kids to be removed from those homes. So I could kind of see, wait, there's, if you look at statistics of how many people are using marijuana, um, it's, it's not, uh, it's all across the board and, um, So today's episode, we're doing with Kelly Williams as our guest to talk about foster care and how drugs and drug laws interface with that from her experience as an attorney working. She's worked really in all aspects of child custody here in Mississippi. Um, Kelly is an attorney. She is admitted to practice in all state and federal courts in Mississippi, as well as the Fifth Circuit and United States Supreme Court. She's a member of the National Association of Counsel for Children, the Mississippi Supreme Court's Parent Representation Task Force, the BARS Children's Advocacy Committee. She's all over the place. And she was the first attorney in the state of Mississippi to be a child welfare law specialist certified. 
She served as a special judge in youth court for a number of years. She served as guardian ad litem uh, for children, which is something I only began to understand becoming a foster parent. And she is currently a parent defender here. Kelly, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. So how did you get into child custody and foster care work in your law practice? Well, I got into it, um, first and foremost, when you come out of law school, you're sort of doing what you can. Um, but I, I worked for a firm for a very short time, about a year or two, and uh, went out on my own after that. And um, really just found that I had a passion for child welfare, you know, based on my relationship with my own children. Um, I would, as I was in court, I would see, and at that time, I was um, really serving only as a guardian ad litem, and so I represented children, and sometimes I represented children in an attorney-client fashion, and sometimes I represented children in an arm-of-the-court fashion. There's two different sort of roles a a guardian ad litem can have in Mississippi, but um, I would watch these proceedings and represent children, and I would um, see courts removing these children from their parents. And I, like you, had that same idea that um, was based on stigma and just total misconceptions and stereotypes that I had in my mind thinking about what um, what anybody must be that finds themselves in an abuse and neglect allegation in youth right. court. You know, that, they must be guilty. Why would they even be right. there? They that's must right. be guilty. If it's gone this far, there must be something, you know, really bad in the home or something that we have to remove this child to check on. Um, but but what it what it boiled down to is that a lot of times it, there wasn't. And um, but these kids didn't go home. And I would go home to my children and I just could not get past the harm that I knew would come to my children if they were taken away from me. And that's where, it would, you know, that's where I began to see this is not what I thought it was. And so that is really what pushed me. I mean, the, the, my, my own relationship with my own children and, and thinking to myself, going home to them and thinking that somebody had lost their child today. And, and that was a really an unnecessary removal. And, you know, and I thought to myself, what, what makes me any different? Um, I, I, like you, thought I loved my children more. You know, I must love my children more. And um, and the truth is, is that, you know, I, every these people love their children, you know. So that that was really what's driven me, which pushed me. Um, and I'm a, and, and I am constitutional minded. I will tell you that I enjoy that aspect of practicing law. Um, but at the end of the day, it is that relationship with my own children that pushed me. So how do kids come into foster care? I had never had any involvement in foster care at all or known anybody that was under allegations of anything child like no nothing about it I just assumed like you were talking about if you're in a court where you're being investigated like how are you not doing something terrible to get in there so what what's the process of how children can come into the system okay well um first and foremost I think the process itself focuses on um safety for children and I think it, that a lot of times you will hear judges say, I'm going to err on the side of caution, you know, for this child's safety. And that is completely understandable. We all, I think we all get that, that not wanting to be, to put a child, either leave a child in an unsafe place or, um, or you know, not take a child when, mm-hmm. when they need to be taken. However, what happens is this, is that in this process, let's say um, anybody can make a report to CPS. We are all, everybody under the Mississippi State statute is a, is a mandated reporter. Um, so 
everybody is expected to make a report if you suspect child abuse. Now, suspect can be a big, can mean something different to everybody, um, and, and and it does for the most part. So, but what happens is somebody makes a report to CPS. There's a hotline, and then once the report comes in, there is a process by which CPS sort of CPS being I'm child sorry, protection child services. protection services, right? Um, and so. They uh, they screen it in or out at that point, and then if they screen it in, it goes to whatever respective county that it deals with. Um, at that point, then it's assigned to an investigator, and an investigator begins to do whatever steps they're going to take to investigate. Um, and it really is up to that investigator what happens at that point. So, um, and then you couple that with uh, some counties in Mississippi are under what's called standing orders. The CPS workers are under what's called standing orders. They have to bring any cases um, that they receive, even if they feel like it's unsubstantiated, that there is no abuse or neglect, to a court in order to just to finally close that matter out. They can't just close out. it out they on cannot. their own. They cannot. Now, some counties can, but not every county. So, um, so what happens is this, is that anybody can make a report about anyone else. And um, and sometimes you don't even you can't even close that out until you get to a court proceeding. Uh, and I know in the past with um, with drugs in particular, for example, we have had cases where um, there is a, a case for physical or sexual abuse, um, which are serious allegations, and and we want to take those serious, and we want to make sure that we protect children. And so, um, but the, a worker will go out and and realize that there is no no evidence of that, um, and in fact, maybe it was just a complete complete misconception. You know, maybe uh, I think I've used this example before, and and we have seen this is that um, a child in in a school age child. Uh, in other words, a verbal child, uh, say a you know a teenager or an elementary school child who can verbalize what's going on with them, as opposed to an infant who may be nonverbal and, and can't speak and tell you what's going on. But uh, you say a child mentions to another child, you know, uh, gosh, you know, my uncle hurt me or something, and a teacher overhears this. <clears throat> Excuse me, and a teacher overhears this. Well. She suspects that something may be going on. She doesn't know for sure, but um, she is a mandated reporter, and she makes a report on that. Uh, so CPS uh, comes out. They begin their investigation. They speak with the child. They speak with the parent. Um, they visit the home. They do all these things that they're supposed to be doing, and they determine that there is, in fact, it was a, a huge – she says, well, well, he he ran into me in the hallway and bumped my arm. It was just something really taken out of context mm-hmm. because the teacher got about – three seconds of something that that alarmed her and and that's okay I mean I'm not saying the teacher did anything wrong I'm just saying this is how this this happens so um but let's say that particular county is under a standing order and that particular CPS worker has to take that matter to court to close it out they can't just close it out and say oh this was a huge this was a huge misunderstanding so they take it to court and let's say that that particular parent had used a drug let's let's say marijuana um now the law prevents this now, but this is what we did used to see as it relates to marijuana in particular. Let's say that the parent had used marijuana two weeks prior to that, and um, maybe they were in a state where they used it legally. Uh, maybe they were in a state where they didn't use it legally. But in any event, they used to marijuana, so um, they are now at a court proceeding, 
um, and they expect to be there with the matter to be dismissed because the CPS worker has told them there's no evidence, but we do have to take it to court. We're going to recommend that it be dismissed. The parent comes in and is asked to do a drug test. Um, even though there's not a drug allegation, many courts in Mississippi still drug test parents. It, um, like just because they have, just because they came they, to court that day. Because they came to court that day. They drug test. That's right. Um, and so, uh, and this particular parent tested positive for marijuana. Well, at that point, even still, there's no evidence of, of any neglect. But up until 2017, this state did, in fact, remove children under that. That, that in fact, the, the marijuana, the positive test itself was used as uh, a basis for neglect or a finding of probable cause of neglect. And even later on, a preponderance of the evidence of neglect. And I know those are legal standards, but I'm just saying that those are the courts are using those tests in and of themselves, absent anything else uh, that would suggest that that parent has neglected that child. So prior to 2017, with this when this law changed in Mississippi, and it may still be this way in other states that have not changed our law in Mississippi, you're not allowed to do that anymore for marijuana. Um, but so, so let's say they, the judge then removed that. They used that positive marijuana mm-hmm. test to say, well, you, you must not be a good parent and I'm going to remove your kids. So those kids might come to my house as a foster family and I might ask the social worker, why are they here? And the social worker might just say drugs. Right. Now, in my mind, I go back to the picture I had of, wow, this must have been so bad. Addiction, crazy dysfunctional right. home life, you know, craziness. When in reality, it could have been what you said, just a, a family living, a parent smoking marijuana. Maybe their children weren't present when they were smoking. Maybe they went down to on a vacation with that. Yeah, who right. knows what they did? You, know? right, <laughs> you can right. test positive for it a, a month after you've actually used it. So it doesn't right. mean that you were smoking it in the car on the way to the right. courthouse. Right. Um, so there's all these different ways of I, I, when I heard that that can happen, I just this kind of sick feeling in my stomach. Like, wait, that's not that's not the situation that I thought foster care was intervening in. I right. I thought as a foster parent, I was coming in in terrible situations to help kids that are in severe circumstances. And there are some of those. Absolutely. There certainly are Absolutely. some of those. But we have to be able to then say there's also not some of those. And that's not right. That's those kids. What we're doing to those kids is really, it's like traumatic. you said, it's, it's very traumatic. traumatic being it is. forcibly removed from your home. You know, I think you nailed it when you said, who knows? Well, those are the things we need to know. Right. We need to be able to distinguish those cases where there is neglect and not neglect. And we can't just base it on a positive drug test. Um, there should be evidence of that because we know that removal is traumatic. There, there's, there's, there is no dispute on that. There's no credible dispute on that. The, the science, the studies, the research, the data, uh, the anecdotes, everything says that, that removal is traumatic. Um, it is just a necessary evil in some cases. Mm-hmm. So, so it really, but, but we should be taking into consideration that trauma. It's not like removal is the, the neutral option for them. So right. if we're going to err on, even if we think about it as we'll err on the safe side and remove them, but... It's, it might be the safe side in one area. It's the nuclear option emotionally right. for those kids. That's, I heard a doctor who wrote an article about it 
Um, that's what he that's what he deemed it as. Foster care is the nuclear option for a child. It rips away permanently right. their sense of safety that their parent can protect them. That right. a stranger's not just going to show up at their house someday and take them away. That's right. And keep them from their parent. They can't visit them when they want to. They can't call them when they want to. They're going to bring you to a stranger's house, no matter how lovely and nice right. that stranger That's is. Right. That's right. <laughs> I want in, in my mind. I'm thinking, but we're a great foster family. Yeah. Um, that it still thinking about my own kids. What would that be like for them right. to be at home one afternoon and a stranger and shows gone. up and says, "You have to get in my car and go." Yeah, and and they can't call me to say what happened or what. Right. When are you gonna? I'm scared. Or mm-hmm. um, they go to a, a stranger's house and and now they don't understand what's happening. And now a parent is navigating, trying to navigate the system of how to then uh, get your child back. So, again, we're not saying that there aren't kids that need to be in foster care. We're saying there are also kids that don't need to be, and that's what we really want to be careful of because in Mississippi we've got 50% of kids almost in our system that are there for something drug-related. So we need to dive into that to say, what does that really mean? Do all those kids need, need to be there? Or do we need to change more laws like we did in 2017 where we said, no, we can't use just a positive marijuana test to say that a parent is so bad that, that they their children need to be removed. That's, just, that's not reasonable. It's not right. true. We need to look at what's actually happening in the hope in the home. So what is it like for parents to navigate the system as you are a parent representative now? Right. Um, it is a complex system. Uh, a lot of people f- who've not been exposed to it feel like that maybe it's an inferior court or it's a kitty court, if you will, and that it's it's sort of just a an easily navigated, you just sort of go, and that is not it at all. In Mississippi, our child welfare laws and our youth court system is a complex system, and it is a combination of state and federal laws um, and uh, always a balance of um, – and you've got the constitutional aspect of it as well, which I, I won't go into a lot here. That I love that part of it, but I know that that's not what people want to hear about. Our, our brains will that's shut right. down. Yeah, sorry, I'm sorry. Everybody's face, eyes will glaze over. Um, but that to to say that it is very difficult. Um, you know, I had been on the other side of the room uh, when I represented children, and seeing parents come in who um, weren't represented, and and the vast majority of parents in Mississippi are not represented. So this is different than criminal court, where you have where the state provides that's right representation. Is that true for every well, if you're accused of a crime? That's right. Now, I mean, if you're if you're entitled to a to a if you're indigent, you're entitled to a, a public defender if you if you're accused right. of a crime, but um, not in you not for child welfare proceedings. Is no, that what you're saying? That's correct. Yeah. Um, now, in some counties, we have that. A pilot program started several years ago, a few years ago. Um, I guess probably maybe at six years ago, uh, maybe seven. But um, we still only have a handful of counties that have it. I think maybe. Uh, I'd have to go back and look at my notes, but maybe only about ten counties that have parent rep. Um, and each of those counties handles it differently. So even every parent in those counties is still not getting um, still not getting representation. I mean, we're not fully 100% covered, and most counties don't even have it. And part of that is a funding issue, obviously. Um, we're we're a, overall a poor state, and and you know p- counties are trying to find the resources to fund that. And um, again, we have this perception that everybody who finds themselves in a youth court proceeding must have abused or neglected their child, and so they, there's even less of that of that uh, desire overall to to fund these programs because they're misunderstood. Mm. Um, so go back to what you were yeah. saying about the, the parents seeing so the parents represent they, themselves. They do. They come in and um, they are lost. 
I mean, they have uh, usually their child has been removed. Uh, they've received a phone call that says, hey, you come to court. You need to come to court. Uh, they show up to court. They see, um, they see everybody in that courtroom knows each other, I mean, for the most part. It is clearly these people work together. They know the system, and they are clearly on the outs. Um, and if you're not represented, you don't know what to say. Um, most of the time, most of them sit there with their mouth shut, which is not always a bad thing, but, but the point is, is, is they are completely lost and, um, trying to navigate that system. There will be hearings. There are shelter hearing. There's a shelter hearing. There's an adjudication hearing. If the child is not returned, it goes on to potentially have review hearings and permanency hearings, all of these things that are both required by state and federal law. Um, and they're lost. They don't know what to say and they don't know what to do and their rights are at issue. Then you've got, um, they should be, uh, CPS should offer them a service agreement in order to get their child back, which actually mirrors or addresses the specific issues that had their child removed. The service agreement is like, this is the list of things that you need to complete to get your child back. To recommend that the judge return your child to you. Right, exactly. Um, and uh, those are those can be complicated relationships as well, um, depending on who the worker is. Uh, so yeah, it's a it's a um, it's a lot. It's a lot. Uh, it's a it's a huge it's a huge, not easily navigated system. And I found it hard to navigate as a resourced college educated go getter personality like I am and it was it just seemed unnavigable you know for us as we're right. trying to navigate right. it with the kids we're fostering and I thought I began to wonder it can feel like it's built for the parents sometimes like we assume if it's this bad for us on this side right. as foster parents it must be that they're getting the good side of it uh, and <laughs> over in, time, I began to think, right. I think we're both getting Everybody's the bad side. Everybody's getting the bad side. Yeah. That's, and, and you make a great point. That's true. And I will tell you, part of, in my opinion, based on my experience, one of the biggest problems is the confidentiality requirement. Now, um, because let, let's be real, if, if in your experience, had, you, had, the, had the confidentiality requirement not been there, then you could have gone and figured out a little bit more about what was going on. Could you not have? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and the confidentiality meaning you can't go and get a – it's not public record. You these, can't go down to the courthouse no, and get – No, you can't attend kind of the hearings. The hearings are closed hearings. They're confidential. Um, you cannot access the court records. And by court records, I mean all records, CPS records, uh, youth court records, any records that are going to be considered at or pertain to that proceeding, uh, you cannot discuss specific cases. Um, so it is all closed. And, and it's not just um, there are civil and criminal procedures set in place for violations of those confidentiality requirements. Uh, but I think that's probably one of the biggest problems is that uh, even seasoned attorneys can find themselves lost in a youth court proceeding because nobody knows what goes on in there. Hmm. And even attorneys have a hard time getting the information or can't get the information about to, to fully understand the case Absolutely. or what, what's happening with it. Not without a court order. Hmm. Yeah. So. so now what's the argument? To me, it seems like, well, why don't we treat it like we do? Uh, don't we treat criminal cases as they're, you know, the names are redacted, but they, they're not confidential. Is that true? That is true. When, when you have a criminal criminal proceeding that arises from some abuse or neglect 
Um, no, that is a public proceeding. Certain parts of that proceeding may be closed by request of one of the parties, um, or you know there are certain uh, protections put in place that we protect children who who testify in those proceedings, um, but they are not confidential um, in the in the sense of a youth court proceeding where it is complete confidentiality. So I would think that the argument against uh, removing some of the confidentiality for youth court and what happens with child welfare cases is, no, we don't want people, we don't want children's public information, you know, we don't want their information or what's going on in their family or whatever to be public information. What would you say to that, that pushback against, no, 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 we have to keep it confidential? Sure. Well, um, I, first of all, I understand the argument. Um, and I do think there is some value or some benefit to um, protecting children's identities in certain details. I will tell you, however, that the confidentiality requirements do far more harm than any of the benefits they provide. Um, it clearly provides flaws in the process. It provides, uh, it protects, protects excuse me, protects flaws in the process and protects um, bad lawyers, uh, lawyers who aren't doing their, jo- their jobs. Um, it protects bad rulings um, by judges who maybe aren't doing their jobs or, or using the, uh, you know, the standards they should be using. So um, I would say there's certainly some value in that, but I don't think that that value supersedes the harm that's done by it. Um, and I would also say that there are protections that we can put in place. For example, in the in in the in chancery court and other civil matters, whether it's chancery and in most circuit court proceedings, they're on MEC, which is Mississippi Electronic Courts. You file things electronically, and one of the rules in MEC is that, as it relates to minors, you can only put their initials and their year of birth, not even their entire date of birth. So there could be protections put in place that that served those purposes that the people who oppose transparency um, cite as their basis for confidentiality. Is that Does that mm-hmm. make sense? Yeah. yeah. So really, the confidentiality is doing some to protect the kids. It's also protecting everybody else in the system, and it's protecting us from seeing where injustice is happening or flaws are happening or things are getting out of hand or somebody is taking the power too far or not doing what they're supposed to be doing for the parents. So it, it, the protection isn't just for kids. It's also allowing maybe sometimes things to be happening um, that – that should be seen, that should be caught, and said, no, 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 this this is not Absolutely, right. absolutely. So how have our laws uh, changed over foster care and drugs specifically over the last couple of years in Mississippi? Okay. Well, in 2017, the, the law that we just talked about, um, that was put in, uh, there was a law put in place that, uh, that essentially says that uh, a parent's positive drug test for marijuana or an admission to using marijuana shall not be um, probable cause or the sole basis for a finding of probable cause. In other words, there must be something more. So there's going to have to be some evidence of neglect, not just a positive drug test. Um, and then in uh, 2000, well, actually, this this last year, um, or this year, this is 2019, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so 2019, we have a new law that was put in place that will go into effect July 1st. And it kept the language that we had, the marijuana, marijuana language we had, but it also addressed um, newborn infants um, as it relates and added them to that marijuana language. Um, 
in Hines County in particular, we have a lot of cases that come from UMC. And so which we, is our public uh, hospital right right and so um we get uh we get quite a few reports where um children or uh infants newborns test positive for marijuana um and that could be uh via a urine test or it could be a meconium test and um and again i don't want to get too far into this i'm uh but you know and the the distinguishing factor in that is that a meconium test goes goes way back goes very far back A, a pregnant woman can use could smoke marijuana at the end of her first trimester or the beginning of her second trimester, somewhere in there, and uh, find out, the, even be- maybe before she knew she was pregnant, um, and then stop using and not use again. And the, the baby's meconium can still test positive, even when the urine tests negative and mom's urine will test negative. So um, all, that was huge for us. We were, you know, we've got women who did everything they were supposed to be doing. Who stopped uh, who smoking st- who stopped once they figured out that they were they pregnant. Once they found out they were pregnant. And their children were being removed, which was, you know, unquestionably, indisputably traumatic. Um, and and with residual of lifetime effects for both. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. That broken bond at birth of being taken away from your mom. Right. Absolutely. Put in another home for months right. probably before right. you can navigate the system to get them back yeah and that's the thing about it you know you make a good point too is it's it's not it's usually not a couple days right we're talking yeah. months we're talking a very this is a slow system um even with parent defenders even with attorneys in the mix it is still a very slow system um you know we've got cases uh you know there's a couple that come to mind that came up this past year that um that were what we call marijuana cases uh, that a parent lost custody of a child over a mar- over marijuana use, uh, and um, we're talking four or five years later getting them back. Wow! Yeah, we had um, two cases this past year, and, that, and and let me do so. These are exceptions. These are exceptions, yeah. but they're they are they are examples of the real harm that can come from an unchecked system like this, hmm. and uh, and. And it was four or five years, and we got them back. We got them back to them, but four or five years. Wow! I mean, that—that's ten. My, that, I, I can't even—I can't even comprehend that. Uh, really, that that number's so big, I can't comprehend what that really means in their lives. Uh, but to get back to that, there, there's also some. We also got some controlled subs, other controlled substance language in the statute that requires that courts um, look at evidence on any positive drug test or when there's drug use by a parent to really make a determination whether or not there's neglect. Um, because like you said, we can, we have people, there are functioning addicts. Um, people can. Or functioning recreational users. Or functioning, rec- certainly functioning, yeah, but, you yeah, know, functioning, certainly. a couple weeks or Absolutely. Something. I mean, no, you know, without a doubt, you know, that was presumed in my statement. Yeah. Certainly there are people who use drugs that function 100% normally. Um, and then there are people who who are addicts who also function somewhat normally. Um, and at the very least, even if they're not functioning in all aspects of their life, I'm not concerned about that, and neither should the court be. We are talking about neglect or abuse with their children in particular. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's helpful to think about, especially if you have kind of the stigmatized view of drug use and addiction that I grew up with. I, if somebody had said, can a parent be a good parent? Can they Can they be doing the things they need to be? Uh, and using drugs, I would have said, are you kidding? No. You know, right, this is, right. I have the stigmatized That's view of this right. instead of the nuanced view that says, 
No, we, we need to, to, to look at this. There are people that are functioning in all different ways. Some of them can't be, but some of them can be. Right. And it is, it, it makes us as, as people who are supporting a state system, uh, we are then responsible for the kinds of trauma that we're doing to families who do not need to have their children removed and the kind right. of harm we are subjecting those children to um, taking them out of their home and putting them in foster care. Um, and, and we need to be accountable for that. We can't just say, well, we're doing our best, you know, some, yeah, you know, maybe right. <laughs> there's right. going to be a few that, 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 you know, that come through. Well, is it a few or is it a lot? And if there's even one, isn't we that should too be doing, many? Isn't that too right. many? I, right. If it was my child, could I say, well, you know, I can, I can, their trauma is just a, a cost of being, of having to, you know, try to save other children from trauma. We, we can't use that. We can't have that kind of thinking. I think I would have thought that I would have thought, I, I just think, well, you know, we probably should just, uh, you know, take them if there's any, you know, and now having children of my own and thinking, you know, when I had my children, I asked for them to be uh, cleaned in my room in the hospital because I had read about how important, you know, and if I'm thinking, okay, I don't even want them away from me for four hours in the hospital because right. we know scientifically how important maternal newborn bonding is. Right. And we're talking about removing children for months and sometimes years right. from their parents we they are not different people than me and my children the the bonding that happens there the emotional uh, needs of a child and their parent we have to take that into consideration when we're right making decisions about that it's a lot at stake i think that we took the took the i think uh you know overall i think the the system has taken the approach that that's collateral damage somehow that is just necessary that it's just part of the process when in fact um, it's not necessary. We can achieve the goals of protecting children without taking, without unnecessary removals. That That's achievable. Thank you so much for joining us today, Kelly. This was fantastic. If you want to connect with Kelly, you can visit her website at kellywilliamslaw.com, and her email address is right there. Thanks for joining us today. You can follow us daily on Facebook at End It For Good MS, and if you'd like to join us for an in-person gathering to discuss how we approach drugs, those dates and locations and RSVP links are emailed out, and you can sign up for those at enditforgood.com and sign up for our email list at the bottom of the homepage. Let's save lives. Let's help people improve their lives and all the different ways that this manifests itself um, in foster care, too. So how do we end our criminal approach to drugs? By changing one mind at a time. Many people are only willing to have this conversation when they are invited to by someone they trust. That's you. Invite your friends, family, and people in your circle of influence to consider a better way. At End It For Good, our hope is that people who hear will become people who tell. Join the movement to end it for good.